so I'm reading a piece from Heavy, an American memoir, and this is a piece where uh, my mother and I are about to leave Maryland, um, and I'm working on what she what she called revision, and at that time I didn't understand it. So here we go. Nothing I'd read in school prepared me to think through the permanence of violence in Mississippi, Maryland, and the whole nation. After school, I kept reading and rearranging the words I'd written, trying to understand what the words meant for my understanding of violence. For the first time in my life, I realized telling the truth was way different from finding the truth. And finding the truth had everything to do with revisiting and rearranging words. Revisiting and rearranging words didn't only require vocabulary, it required will and maybe courage. Revised word patterns were revised thought patterns. Revised thought patterns shaped memory. I knew looking at those words that memories were there. I just had to rearrange, add, subtract, sit, and sift until I found a way to free the memory. You told me in Mississippi revision was practice. In Maryland, I finally believed you. The truth was that practicing writing meant practicing sitting down, sitting still, and my body did not ever want to be still. When it had to be still, all it wanted to do was imagine dunking with two hands or kissing a person who loved me. Sitting still just as much as any other part of writing took practice. Most days, my body did not want to practice, but I convinced it that sitting still and writing were paths to memory. Before leaving Maryland, I went to a doctor for the second time in my life. The good news was that the doctor said I was 6'1", 208 pounds, two inches taller and almost 20 pounds lighter than I was when I left Jackson. The bad news was that I had a heart murmur. You said even though the murmur was functional, I should be worried because we watched Hank Gathers, the power forward for Loyola Marymount basketball team, die of a heart attack on TV after catching the alley-oop. I love the sound of the word murmur, and I love that I was coming back to Mississippi with a murmur, a smaller body, and a new relationship to writing, revision, memory, and you. Before leaving Maryland, I wrote, America seems filled with violent people who like causing people pain, but hate when those people tell them that pain hurts. I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen, an in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, the first season is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. A body, the shape of a lake at sunset, the crack of ice cubes, long fingers on unevenly shaped hands, a mother, an unwanted curve, the place where we were born. These are our context. These 
are our landscapes. They play backdrop to the stories we tell, occasionally intruding into the foreground to occupy the spaces of our main characters. They haunt us. They call us. They become a way to decode meaning. In a country where our contexts are often imposed by economics, by history, by inequality, what do we wish to claim as our own? Can we start to understand our unique and complex humanities by really paying attention to the people, places, and events that surround us? The context of place, how the places we are from shape us. Kiese Lehman, critically acclaimed writer, and Jerome Lamar, fashion designer and stylist. Heavy is an American memoir. <laughs> for better and worse, an man. And so for better and worse. I'm interested in why that 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 subtitle, and then how does your story upset this this sort of very stale, small version of what we might call an American story? Your your story, like it stretches our imaginations when we think about this notion of an American memoir, an American story. How do you see your book intervening in that? Oh. Wow, you're asking me stuff that I, I really want to talk about, which is rare. <laughs> which is rare on interviews. Um, and I'm loving that I get to interview you. This shit is everything. I can't me. believe it. I can't even believe it. I want to start talking about the trips from Bassett to the train station. <laughs> um, but you know what, Darnell? What's ill to me about like my story, and I think we're all still writing our stories, but in the American story about Mississippians, Mississippians are fortified home in Mississippi and they have to fight and then for for reasons they either have to leave or they're kicked out right but I think my story is a little different because that happened to me I fought I got kicked out of school I fought I had to leave my state and I was in New York and I could have made a, a, a an incredible living up in New York or on the west coast but I decided to come home do you know what I'm saying and I, I think that I think sometimes people like us who leave and come back um, I think that that necessarily like disrupts the American narrative of success or progress, right? And I didn't come home to save Mississippi. I came home to be saved by Mississippi. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I came home because I needed to be closer to my grandma. I needed to be closer to those spirits that I talked about. Those spirits travel, no doubt. But I believe in like geographic specificity and heavy as American memoir because you know I'm, I'm playing with words. I'm being direct and misdirect. It literally is an American memoir, like an American corporation paid to get it out. So it's going to be faulty in the ways that American products are faulty. But at the same time, I'm pushing against like expectations of what Americanness means and trying to make space for that book, which is my mama's story, our story, my grandmama's story, and the story, hopefully, of like generations of Mississippians to come. How do you see the Bronx shaping you? How does this your city help you to see yourself um, in the world? Jerome Lamar, fashion designer and stylist. Wow. Uh, the Bronx is tough, right? But there's so much diversity and beauty here that people, you know, we call it Wakanda. Really, like, because people don't want to come there. There's a whole facade of it burning still, which is fine. But once you arrive, you realize that there's so much beauty and diversity and, and community here. And I think that was really significant in, in my upbringing, kind of understanding and be able to understand the difference between a Chinese person and a Japanese person or a Korean person. And not just saying they're Asian. That respect, that understanding of diversity at an early age was there. So people still think that the, the Bronx is burning and, and 
And I laugh at that because it's kind of like, okay, it's burning because it's a phoenix. It creates constantly. It created American fashion with Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein and Mickey Drexler, who was the head of The Gap and and Come on and teach the kids. You know what I'm saying? It's the beginning of hip-hop where where hip-hop didn't even exist until it existed in the Bronx, which is the macro culture right now, right? There's so much here and there's so much of... uh, It's so complex and simple at the same time, which pushes people to be harder, tougher, stronger, mutable, you know? Um, and I think that's where the, the, the essence of the Bronx comes from. And I, I bring it everywhere I go, you know? The context of our practice, the ways we are shaped by and shape what we create. Jerome Lamar and Dietrich Bracken's artists. And what's interesting about it is, you know, I, I look at the images from Black is King, and those images are strikingly beautiful. They are uh, an aesthetic vernacular that is Black. So um, Black. And can change the way that people, Black people, see ourselves. Which brings me to the question of what do you see, or, or how does fashion, how does style, how does aesthetic, how can that be used to shift perceptions of what is possible? Wow. Okay, so when we when we leave the house every day, we are presenting ourselves to the world, right? So I was always told to have a great pair of shoes because that's how a person judges you. My grandmother was very clear about that. She was like, make sure your shoes are on point because that is how we they're gonna see you out in the world, you know? And so whether I'm wearing a t-shirt or a, a lace front wig or you know, like, you know, I switch it up. <laughs> So, you know, no matter what it is, I know my shoe game is always on point. You know, I love shoes. I love accessories. But my shoe game is always up to par. So um, with that being said, there's a level of confidence that is presented in every silhouette, every garment that we wear. I think, like, for example, Beyonce emphasized the fashion in that video for a reason to show how much culture and flavor we could we give to the world that most people have no idea that we presented it, that we gave it to them, you know? Um, whether it was about the the spirits of the water or the luxury in, in Mood Forever or the Nigerian lace that I did. Those are all elements that have existed before time. Come on, Orishas. You know what I'm saying? The Orishas. Yes. Um, and... They're here, and we we reference them all the time, but we don't know them because we've been diluted so much. And I think that is some, this this visual that she created, her crazy, the whole team of Parkwood. And I've told you this before, and we've had this conversation. But one of the things, the many things I admire about your work is that it's deeply, deeply contextual. Your heart, your mind, it's so thoughtful and nuanced and drawing on so many different cultural practices from European figural tapestry, West African kente cloth, African-American quilt making, Southern folk art, Greek mythology, biblical references, etc. And it's probably so much more um, there than what, than what is seen and what can be understood. What is it, why is it important for you to draw from multiple practices and from multiple contexts, from pulling from all of these different sources of inspiration or places in which you want to critique in your art? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think for me, it, it is both that like, 
I think all people, but particularly Black folks, have always sort of kind of creolized, if you will, or like remixed and borrowed and taking these kind of diverse cultural practices to to make something new. For me, it is like in in keeping with the ideas of kind of collage or quilt making, which are these two artistic practices that um, are so important to Black life and culture. And I think it is because these myths, particularly when we think about kind of Greek mythology or the Bible, are these Western things that have so shaped the world that for me, I always want to bring them up and inject something of, of my own experiences in them to sort of kind of blow these stories out open and think about how they how they are queer or how they are black and that like there there needs to be space to like re-understand these stories or reinterpret them as opposed to kind of accept that they are these things that kind of subjugate people and get them to fall into um, these traps. <laughs> That's a perfect word. Context of masculinity, loving each other, and the expectation of being a man. Kiese Lehman and Dietrich Brackens. Yeah. Your writing also reminds us that um, all of our physical landscape shape us, our towns, our countries, and our bodies, right? What are the stories that, as Black men, what are we told about our bodies? And what are the ones we tell ourselves? And even more, what are the ones that are missing, that have yet to be told? Oh, my goodness. You know what? Like, the hard part about that question is, I think we do tell ourselves in whispers some of the stories that we need to say out loud. Yeah. Do you know? So, like, when I was growing up, I never heard the word queer. I rarely heard the word gay. But however you define queer or gay, there wasn't a young child in my neighborhood who I grew up who wasn't at some point, like absolutely embodying however you describe and define that word. And I think we whispered that, right? We whispered that kind of stuff. And so, like, my, my, my desire is that, you know, I mean, thankfully, like, thanks to your work and thanks to some other work out here in this world, I think I think young Black folks in Mississippi, you know, who are queer, um, who are genderqueer, can now, like, if not yell or scream if they want, but they can whisper if they want and possibly yell. But the fact is, there's still a consequence for that. And I think all of that has to do with the stories we tell each other about masculinity. Like, for the most part, I think we have to be hard. I think we're seen as threats. But then within our families, we're also sometimes given, at least in my family in Mississippi, we're also sometimes given these roles we either don't deserve or do deserve because of, because of patriarchy, right? That's right. And so I grew up like that. You know, I was because there were no men in my family, with the exception of my Uncle Jimmy, who was he was absent. He wasn't there. You know, my mama and my grandmama always called me little man and they made me sit at the head of the table from the time I was like eight on. You know what I'm saying? Um, an expectation when I was in graduate school was that I needed to get out of graduate school so I could be a man and take care of my family. And so while I understand where that comes from in, in those black women. I think we have to push back against that and question like in my family, the people who fought were black women. You know what I'm saying? The people who protected were black women. Black men loving black men is a revolutionary act. Like, I've heard that so long, and I think a lot of us have, but I don't know how how enacted it has been yet. And I, I don't know, I think there are a lot of kind of structural things that work to prevent that for us. But 
Yeah, I, I, I think that that's maybe the, the biggest kind of piece that is missing. Um, and I think for me, I'm, I'm often reflecting on how how we are loved, who loves us, um, how that might contribute or show roadmaps to, to our own future. Um, I think so much about how Black queer women love me and love us, um, love each other as, as kind of a roadmap. The context of HIV, a future free from the expectation of statistics, Dietrich Brackens. You have a solo exhibition love to talk about, and it's actually interesting because I, you know, I read everything as a metaphor. Bless, blessed are the mosquitoes, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, shit, that's so fucking relevant. You know, we always coming for the mosquitoes. Just want to slap them off our knees, um, take power over um, this particular being, and I, I'm sitting here as you're talking, thinking, wow. <laughs> Shit, blessed are the mosquitoes. Um, somehow, who figure out how to survive in spite of, and I cannot think, but that that has to be somehow in my mind a metaphorical reference to what it might mean to be black. But um, that's me as an as an audience reading um, your image. Just what was the context that inspired you to actually create it, and what are some of the ideas you're exploring through that particular? Yeah. Exhibition. Yes. <laughs> um, I I mean, first, I have so much reverence for any animal that the world hates. I, I think for me, if I think about the kind of historical, how historically Black folks have always been animalized or um, compared to things that are pest or are terrifying or dangerous, for me, I always try to raise those things up to a level where they are considered holy. Uh, So for Blessed Are the Mosquitoes, I was really thinking about this animal that has been aligned with plague, maybe rightly so, (laughs) and trying to extend that metaphor to think about the um, AIDS epidemic. Um, So for me, I was really making this work to think about and meditate on an ongoing crisis in the world that so plagues Black queer men. Yeah. And was inspired by a statistic from the CDC that claims that within their lifetimes, one in two Black men who have sex with men, to borrow their language, will be diagnosed. And to me, it was just like the most sobering thing I had read to date, because I'm just like, how, how can we be 40, 50 years out from kind of the initial shock of this thing and 50% of a population will still sort of be grappling with this as, as, a, as compared to one in 11 for white men. And I just was like, wow. <laughs> and like, there's nothing funny about it, but I think sometimes the things seem so crazy that I don't know what to do, but... Absurd. Yeah, yes, you know? absurd. Um yeah, but that show, the work in the show, is inspired by that statistic and thinking about what the world was like in the sort of genesis of this thing and where we are now, like what is the future going to look like? The context of now, COVID-19, quarantine, and violence against our bodies. Kiese Lehman and Dietrich Brackens. I think just like in writing, I think if you start large, you just got to get specific. You know, every day in this quarantine, 
I've written an apology and an ode to different parts of my body. You know, it could be my heels, my hips, you know, my left testicle, my right ear. I think sometimes you can um, elucidate the context by getting specific. And for me, all of these different body parts tell a story that is super race, super gendered, super, you know, like rooted in like sexuality. But I think sometimes we got to get out of like the superstructure and down to the narrow. And I don't know if you can get any more narrow than the absolute specificity of the body. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So when I started telling the story about my hips, I mean, that was the saddest story that I've ever written and my legs, you know, um, but I just think we got to get as specific as possible. I think we have to use all this lush theory to guide us back to like the origin and then let the origin kind of magnify and, and broaden the theory. Let me just that's, let me just let me let just let people just pause and sit with that shit right there. That was a word. I need y'all to receive that word. That's good. <laughs> that's true. That's a good ass <laughs> word. Yeah. And it's truth. You know what I mean? Um, and I, in so many ways, like. I've often gone feeling so, and I've been able to survive being disconnected from my body. Yeah. Um, not present in my body. I got sisters like Amy Meredith Cox who make me do yoga and shit and meditate and be, you know, making me feel in my, feel my toes and feel myself, feel the fingertips. Yes. And as a black person, um, for whom whose body exists as a target, I get why it's so easy to sort of like disconnect, but you are so right. Yes. I wonder if you could just talk a bit about that. What are you thinking as an artist um, in this moment? I feel like more and more I don't have faith that Black people will get to live in a world where we won't be assailed physically, psychologically, in, in any way. So I keep thinking lately about like how how have we done this for so long? Like how have we lived in this world for so long and, and managed to scratch out any kind of joy <laughs> and not burn shit not burn everything the fuck down yes yes um, okay and so, I mean, because I think, we're grace we're graceful people right <laughs> um, so I feel like for me I I have gotten closer to understanding my mission or my purpose and in, in that like uh, I don't know I feel like I have so little time for distraction and I don't mean that relative to to like ignoring what's happening but like I have to continue to find ways to get out of my bed and make what I'm supposed to be making. Like, if we are only confronted with a world that ignores us and kills us and, you know, commits atrocities against us, like, I have to grow something that encourages people who look like me, who, who spend their time in this world, who are grinning and bearing it. Like, I, I can't look away. I have to make things that speak to the moment. I have to make things that offer some kind of vision of a future that is different. Context matters, period. So how could anyone ever imagine you as one thing? One identity, one experience, when your humanity is so much larger, so much more complex than that. We hold multiplicities within ourselves. These spaces, these landscapes give us texture and terrain. They mark us in ways that we can't always immediately recognize, but are endlessly unfolding. Part of the work, part of the practice is to map them, to own them, to find the ways in which we can use them to change and to create, to find the I in intersectionality. The endless reinventions of the Bronx, the revisions of Mississippi, the love that is found in my hometown Camden, 
There is power in naming our context and that which defines and shapes us. To dismiss that context is to dismiss individuality. And that ain't love. Yo, I've got to ask you a question. If you know that I got that pandemic beard, but but like you, I wanted to ask you. I should ask you this off off camera. But how you keep your shit so like on point? Let me tell you. So it's it's a whole thing. I um, <laughs> I wash and condition it. Oh lord, okay. Blow dry it with oil. What? And like a beard softener. I do that almost almost daily. You got to wash it almost every other day. Oh, and like the same way that you wash your head, you wash your beard, you condition it. Um, mm. I put a you take an oil, and then I take like a um, like a beard beard pomade pomade, yeah. And then I comb that thing out with a blow dryer. Word, mm-hmm. man, my shit's so napped up, and I'm I've been all, I spent all day just doing this right here. I got this little shit here. No, you got to like, you got to at least add some oil to that thing. Get I'm like my shit love. don't look like Darnell's. Something wrong with mine. Gotta, you got to put some oil in that chicken. You can't fry that thing up. In- <laughs> hey, you don't want no baked chicken. You want fried chicken. I know. Well. My shit's so baked. So <laughs> baked. Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Beef Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney. 